Welcome to Career Tools. This week, answering wacky questions, part of the interview series. Here we go. Folks, the cast we're about to deliver for Career Tools uh, during the week at the end of uh, the year of 2013 is also part of our interviewing series. If you own the interviewing series, whether you're a licensee or not, you get access to all the show notes of any cast we've done regarding interviewing. And so this is one of those casts. Uh, we keep adding interviewing series casts to the list. I think we're over 25 or even 30 now. Uh, so we encourage you to uh, purchase the interviewing series because we're constantly adding value. At some point, 20 or 30 years from now, we'll have shared everything we know about interviewing. Okay, so Wendy, we put off talking about wacky questions for a while, and we were right because we believe at Mandatory Tools that you don't do a timely cast, you do a timeless cast, and of course, I'm much older than you, but when I was younger, they didn't really ask wacky questions all that much, yeah. um, but they became popular in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, but but they're declining now, right? These, these trick yeah, questions? Yeah, there's definitely yeah. less than they were. I mean, I remember being asked, what, if I were a shape, what shape would I be when I was 21? So just outside of, co out of college, so that was 20 years ago. Um, but they're definitely getting rarer, but that doesn't mean you won't get, you know, a hiring manager who isn't listening to his HR department or just somebody who wants to go off on one um, asking a funny, a wacky question. Right. There are two really parts to wacky questions, guys. Uh, well, actually, you know what, Wendy, let's let's get right to it. Tell us what the guidance is going to be, and then I want to help people understand a little bit about wacky questions before we get into the details. Sure. So we're going to cover why do they ask, ask these questions, what we think the rationale is. Um, how to answer, which is you give an answer and you give your working out loud. And then we're going to give two examples. Yes. Like how many baseballs does it take to fill a jumbo jet? Exactly. Yeah. And actually, and the next question we're going to give is if you were a shape, what shape would you be? Those actually are very different categories of wacky questions. The jumbo, the baseball one actually has some rationality to it and has some history. I'll explain. The shape question is just dumb. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you were nice to call it weird. I actually think it's dumb. And that really generally is a manager who doesn't know what he or she is doing, but thinks there is some value based strictly on a personal um, point. Okay, good. So let's give them some background. Why do managers ask these stupid questions? What makes managers think these are smart questions? They ask these questions because they think they have value in some way that otherwise it would be pointless to ask them but they think that there is something about these questions that shows them your way of thinking um it shows them uh what you have in your head how inventive you are how creative you can be how you can apply what you know of what you have learned to the real world um all of those things <laughs> that I'm struggling because I wouldn't ask any yeah, of these right, questions. Exactly. We're struggling <laughs> like, to understand. Putting, yeah. putting my, myself in that mindset. There, there is a rationale to it, but they're all pointless things yeah. to do, this is which Scott, doesn't help our listeners. This is why Scott Fitzgerald said that the definition of genius is holding two opposing thoughts in your mind at the same time. I'll tell you, um, generally speaking, when a manager asks this question, for the vast majority of these questions that are particularly wacky as opposed to just complex, they don't have a good reason. They have a reason, which is they might like your answer. But folks, one of the things we teach in, in interviewing, in fact, in, in 2014 or 2015, we're going to 
provide our effective interviewer series to teach managers how to interview. And um, one of the things we say is never ask a question unless you know what the right answer or what an appropriate answer is or what you're looking for. And too often what managers do when they ask these kinds of questions is, is, is they're hopeful that there will be something interesting, something different, or they're just waiting to hear what your answer is. If you don't have a clear concept of, of where the right answer is and where a wrong answer isn't, if you will, then, then these kinds of questions are, are ludicrous. Um, and all too often, the more wacky they are, the more individualistic they are. And here's what's, I think, particularly sad about them, is they're not good predictors, and we'll come later to why that's led to some of their decline, but they're not good predictors for a broad number of people. Now, there are some managers who will say, the people who I hired answered this question right. It's my own sort of, it's my own creative question. <laughs> um, and the problem is, is that you can't predict it. And so what ends up happening is for many people going through that interview, they get the question from this manager and they don't really know what to do with it. They don't know whether it was good or bad. Managers think it's good not to tell anybody how they did and to withhold their thinking. It just it adds to their perception of their own power, which is ludicrous. And what ends up happening is it's reinforced that interviewing is a black box that you can't know it, that it's unpredictable, that it's unpreparable for. And this takes, this makes the system even more inefficient. It gives more power to the hiring manager, but the hiring manager doesn't need any more power. It just adds to the perception of the power and of course adds to the resentment in the minds of many, many people uh, who are interviewing. So it's dumb. And, and so if you're a manager and you're listening to us, please don't use these questions. They don't work. Wendy, let's do this. I'm sorry, we've gone on too long now. Give us some examples of some of the questions. Okay, so uh, how many baseball baseballs does it take to fill a jumbo jet? Which is a question we're going to address in a second. Right. How long? How long does it take a wrench to reach the ocean floor from a rowboat? I'm, I'm impressed that you said wrench and not spanner. <laughs> no, yeah. I practiced. Uh, which was actually a question I heard a hiring manager ask multiple candidates who had PhDs in yeah, math. Sure. So, you know, clearly they know the answer. If you were a shape, what shape would you be? That's a question I've been asked. Um, if you were shrunk to the size of a pencil and put in a blender, how would you get out? Which is similar to the question that was asked uh, in the film Internship, which I re watched recently. Oh, really? I, I assume that's a function of if you retain your strength, you can jump out, right? But, but anyway, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, how many ridges are there around a quarter, or if you're in the UK, a tenpence? Um, and explain to me what has happened in this country in the last 10 years. So they're all questions I found on, uh, so some of them were from my own experience, and yeah. a couple, the last two were ones that I found on the internet as it, people were saying, I went to an interview and this was a question I was asked. There's a wide range of potential value to these questions. We don't recommend any of them. Uh, I happen to like, but I would not ask how many baseballs it take to fill a jumbo jet. And there's a reason why. Whereas the shape one is terrible. And of course, the ridges one, I would say, well, I have a quarter here in my pocket. Let me help. Yeah, let's count. <laughs> if there's data available to us, why would we do maths, to use your word? Why wouldn't we just count, provided it's counting that can be done fairly quickly? Um, okay. So I assume you're going to tell us what I've known for years is that these, none of these questions, the key is they don't have one right answer. No, they don't. And and part of the part of the reason that hiring managers ask them is to see if you can think on your feet. And 
answer something that you couldn't possibly know the answer to or that doesn't even have a rational answer. Right, or that it makes no sense to want to know. That it doesn't makes no sense to want to know how many baseballs could you fit in, fit in, a, exactly. in a jumbo jet. Well, I, I think our guidance has to start with, because we've just told you there isn't one right answer, please, whatever you do, guys, don't assume that there is and then dig yourself a hole that you oughtn't be in by thinking, oh no, I have no idea. First of all, a hiring manager doesn't want to hire somebody like that because that says, well, in faced with a situation you're not certain about what to do, you immediately dig yourself a hole. We don't want that. We want somebody who goes, well, okay, I, I probably figured that out. I don't really know how, but or that doesn't make any sense to me. But okay, you know, we're faced with situations that we don't make sense to us all the time. And managers, hiring managers, particularly executives, we want people who... You know, as the, as the, as the, as I recently mentioned in things I think I think it goes out to all of our licensees, when there is no wind, row. Or as the U.S. Marines would say, do what you can with what you have, where you are right now. In other words, don't sit around and feel bad that you have no idea. We want you to take action. And if you're starting with, I have no idea, the likelihood that you're going to be creative is, is, is pretty lim limited, right? Yeah. Okay. So they're trying to find out what? They're trying to find your logical thinking and communication skills. That's what most hiring managers will say. They want to hear how you would come up with the answer or if you come up with an answer, where you got that from. You know, if you're asked, are you a sh uh, what would you be if, a sh if you were a shape? And we're going to talk about that one in a minute. The answer has to be, okay, so I think of this shape and these are the reasons why. And it has to have a kind of logical, rational kind of idea to it. Yeah, and, and even though there is, there are some people who would say about the shape question that, well, any of them is the right answer provided they explain. My experience with the question is the manager has a bias and he or yeah. she wants you to say what shape they, you know, they want, you want, they want you to agree with what they think their shape is, which is dumb. We're not in control of every interview in the world, guys, so you are going to get periodically wacky questions like these. Yeah. And and it's impossible to guess what's in the hiring manager's mind in terms of, oh, he had a shape in his mind. You can't guess it. You, you know, yeah. none, of, none of us are Darren Brown. We can't find out what's in other people's minds. So literally any answer will work as yes. long as you can justify it. So the moment you hear that question, you get, instead of going, oh, I have no idea what the answer is, think, no. That's one of those wacky questions. Yeah. Any answer will work. Any answer can work. And what I need to do is be confident and deliver my thinking and trust that if it's a manager that's asking a question that doesn't have a right answer, first of all, that's a fundamentally bad idea. But, but if there isn't a right answer, delivering your answer, whatever it might be, with enthusiasm and with clarity about why you think the way you think, you're probably going to be fine. And if you're interviewing with a manager who thinks you should be a circle when you say triangle... Well, you're doomed anyway, and there's nothing that would keep you from being doomed with a manager stupid enough to think triangle. I, I'm, I'm sorry. There just, it just doesn't. <laughs> and, and if you want to work for that guy still, <laughs> yeah. you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me also say this about this situation, guys. Um, there's another reason why these came out, and I'll use the example of the baseball question as opposed to the shape one. How many baseballs will fit in a jumbo jet or why are manhole covers round or the one that I was faced with and I actually got close to the right answer was how many barbershops are there in Chicago the assumption is and and I want to start with 
high-end consulting firm. So we're talking Bain, in the US, we're talking about Bain and McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group, also known as BCG and sometimes Accenture and so on. They used these questions a number of years ago because they're constantly trying to look for distinctive intellect and create both both brightness, meaning the ability to understand things, and also creativity. There's all different kinds of intellect. Uh, they want high IQ and they want creativity too. Um, and unfortunately, that's sometimes why consultants come across as aloof because they're analytical and intellectual and not warm. Um, and they use these for a number of years and there is a natural tendency in any economic system for players who are highly rewarded for their processes and systems to be adopted by uh, other players, other consulting firms and or larger firms or smaller firms who wish to be rewarded as highly as the, the more highly regarded firms. So if you're a mid-level consulting firm and you hear that McKinsey asks question X, you're going to start asking question X. Now, in many cases, you know, McKinsey and these other firms had a rationale, which is they wanted this intellect and this creativity, and they routinely put their consultants in situations where the consultant was working in an industry that they never had never known about, and all the data in the world about industries, which most of these consulting firms have, is not the same thing as understanding the industry. If somebody reads the Bible, that doesn't mean they get the idea of love. Um, or you can read a math book and you can understand it passively, but that doesn't mean you could do calculus. Or you can read an engineering book, but that doesn't mean you can build a bridge that anybody would want to drive their car over. So they would ask these questions because they were looking for something other than a really involved multi-hour interview where they could test whether or not you could do their job. The other side of that coin is at that level, there is no way to prepare to do for that, to do that job because the average 95% of their hires were fresh out of college or fresh out of business school and had never dealt with these level of problems. They were interviewing for a job no one who they were interviewing had done before. And so they were looking for something that was a bit of a game changer beyond just doing a case interview. And many of these types of questions tend to come packaged with a case interview where they describe a situation to you and, and see whether or not you could, you could handle it. Well, a lot of the young people that they were interviewing didn't know cases, didn't know enough about industries. There was such a gap between the interviewer and the young person. They came up with some questions like, how many baseballs does it take to fill a jumbo jet? that would give some insight into whether or not they had the ability to, in a situation where you don't know, you don't know the knowns or the unknowns, you can come up with some sort of rough hewn way to address the level of uncertainty, reduce the level of uncertainty, something that was manageable, and then to determine whether or not your, your, uh, your construct about the situation you were in was valid or not. And so the baseball one or how many, how many barbershops in Chicago, another one, was essentially can you think creatively and clearly and at the same time analytically, and analytically and creatively don't often go together, about a situation that is new to you, like barbershops in Chicago. Why would anyone want to know? Well, look, guys, the reason they asked that question is because nobody would want to know that. <laughs> And so therefore, and the reason they, wanted, they, they would ask that question is because if somebody would want to know that, there would be data available for us to know it, right? Yeah, and, and nobody's going to come into the interview already knowing the answer. Exactly. It's an, un, it's an unknowable, well, yes. it's not unknowable, 
because somebody does know that but but in theory nobody who ever comes to the interview is ever going to know an answer right. and so everybody's on a level playing field about the information they have and the answer they're oh, able to and, give and, and look I, I used to speak at all the business schools and guys used to say to me yeah they constantly change those questions uh duh dude your buddy <laughs> came back and said hey they asked this question about barbershops in chicago well, I can figure that out, and then I can figure out the number is this, and then I can make my answer sound good, uh, and so on. Yeah, so this started with niche, high-end firms looking for creativity in their question asking that would help them get some insight into the potential abilities in the environment they were going to put people in for people who had never been in that environment before, and that was high-end consulting firms. Uh, that then trickled down, and it went all kinds of places. It got a a reputation as being an intellectual challenge. And the classic example of this, the place where it really exploded, the, the company that caused it to explode in popularity is Google. Mm -hmm. Because Google has a tendency to hire very, very smart people, PhDs and the like. And, and in the beginning, this was we're now 2013, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they were looking for ways to distinguish and ha uh, the, the brightness and the creativity and intellectual horsepower of people. And so they'd ask them to solve a problem. And you'd be surprised how many smart people can handle these questions. I mean, if you're listening to some of the questions we put and you said, oh, I don't, you know, I can't possibly do it. They'd be like, well, yeah, okay, fine, but I can figure it out. Yeah. Uh, my brother Walt once took, he said, I can, I'll prove how smart I am. He didn't really say it that way. He took the game Trivial Pursuit and he said, ask me any question. And I pulled out every single card and asked him every single question and he knew every single answer. You know, well, pretty smart, right? <laughs> of course, if you've played the game 150 no, and that, times, well, that's, had every question. Dude, that's the thing about my brother Walt. He had, <laughs> he's not the kind of guy that would play Trivial Pursuit. No, so, that's true. Yeah, but he, here's the thing. The big firms started using it and other firms copied it. Well, the thing that really exploded it was Google because people say, whoa, Google's great. They got these great margins and really smart people. And apparently it's a real cool to place to work to let you bring your cockatoo and your dog and all kinds of stuff. And it's in Silicon Valley and it's cool. And I use their product and I like it. And wow. And there are all kinds of reasons why those are bad reasons. But nonetheless, everybody started using them. And all it did was multiply the number of people who were asking questions. They didn't know why they were asking them. And... The real change came in the last couple of years, in, actually somewhat in conjunction, not, no, not in conjunction with, but in my belief related to Project Oxygen, which we have talked about before at Manager Tools. Project Oxygen was Google's insight into are managers necessary and if so, what do good managers do? And what do you know? They discovered that managers do one-on-ones and feedback <laughs> and coaching and delegation and they really care about their people surprise like gee we've known that for a long time but anyway what they also discovered was they did data and discovered that these questions are horrible predictors of success <laughs> in the job and the beautiful thing the thing i love about google different what most people like about google I, look i like the fact that i think google's cool i think apple's cool i think yahoo's cool i think microsoft and intel are cool too um and i'm not interested in them because they're cool I'm interested in them because in this case, Google had data which says there's no predictability here. These questions don't do any better than anything else. And so in Google's case, when they measure whether or not a Google Doodle affects the user interface, which makes an enormous difference on the load on their servers and on their, their uh, ability to deliver results to their customers, yeah, they said, the data said, we ain't doing that. And if the data says we ain't doing that, you better have a pretty darn good reason, Mr. or Ms. Manager, why you're doing it. Mm 
So look guys, there's a history here, okay? And if you get asked one of these questions, you know the history now, the manager is probably doing something he or she ought not to do, and you're now forewarned and forearmed because we're gonna give you a couple of examples here, and you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Now, I'm gonna also admit, as we alluded to earlier, if you're interviewing with a manager who doesn't know what she is doing, and is, is drunk with the power and wants to appear smart to you and nod her head knowingly when you give the wrong answer to the shape question as if there is such a thing, you're screwed anyway and there's nothing we can do to help you and we can't predict every single situation and every single manager and interview and so on. And that's why we say our guidance is for 90% of the people 90% of the time. And we would like to eliminate the 10% of managers who do stupid things like that in an interview. And we've tried and we have been unsuccessful thus far. Stay tuned, maybe in 500 years, manager tools and career tools will have done it for you or your progeny. Okay, that was a very, very long aside. <laughs> a soliloquy. That's good though, I think it's helpful to know why people are asking. Yeah, and, and so there is actually some history and there is a nugget of goodness in there and it's gotten turned into something that it oughtn't. Okay, so our first bit of guidance then in terms of delivering the answer is you, you're gonna give your work out loud, right? Yeah, exactly, so it's like being in, grade three or whatever it was that you had to do your, the math problem at the top and then you had to show your working and QED at the end, except we're going to not necessarily do it in that order. So the answer will have three parts. The answer, which is the shape, the number, the conclusion, the summary, the, whatever you came up with, your workings, which is how you got from the question to that conclusion, and then checking that the interviewer got what they needed, that they have an answer and they followed your logic. Mm -hmm. Now, there's actually a distinction here between the types of questions you get that you might consider yourself wacky. There are some questions, which I alluded to from the consulting firms, that tend to be more deductive in nature or involve some math or some problem-solving skills. In those cases, you don't have to give your answer a summary first. You can, you can delay the answer because in fact they don't care what number you come up with they want to know that you can deal with uncertainty attempt to do, to eliminate some amounts of uncertainty with some reasonable assumptions and then still problem solve and figure out whether or not the problem is even within the realm of possibility or I'm sorry the solution is within the realm of possibility if the correct answer for the baseball one is seven million I'm gonna make that up that's what Wendy's answer is and you said 10 or you said 3, neither one of those would be wrong at all. It's not wrong. You wouldn't be dinged for coming up with 3. Unless you said, well, I think a baseball is about 80 square or cubic feet in size. Then they would, they would just say, well, you don't even understand metrics. Because hopefully you all know what 80 cubic feet is, right? That said, um, if you're asked for a shape or a color or a, a question that has a uh, that is a personal choice like animal, vegetable, mineral, or um, if you could do your life over, what would you do differently or something, something like that, that's a personal thing, then you deliver the answer, your conclusion first. You don't have to give the conclusion first. Again, if it's math, if it's problem solving, if there's some assumptions and deductions in there. It doesn't matter as long as you're structured, because the idea is that you struct you structure your answer, which helps it helps you not get lost in your answer, and it also helps the interviewer follow your logic. Right. And it's totally okay to say, well, let me think about that for a minute, or 
Well, I've never thought about that before. In fact, I, I love saying I never thought about it before. Now, there are some people who we don't recommend do that because you are so busy thinking about the words you're saying, you're not thinking about your answer while you're saying those words. But there's nothing wrong with taking a moment and pausing and collecting your thoughts. You don't need to take a minute because a minute would actually seem like five billion hours in an interview. <laughs> Most people, if I, when I'm teaching interviewing, I tell them, okay, close your eyes. I'm going to say you have seven seconds after you're asked a question before you start your answer. These are called reflective questions, by the way. When you get asked a reflective question, you have up to seven seconds. And I tell them, okay, close your eyes. I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to start the clock ticking. And when I, when I get done, I'm going to pick one of you out of the audience and you're going to have to answer this question. Uh, and so you'll know seven seconds are over when I say someone's name. And so I ask the question and I start looking at my watch and counting. And they can't believe that seven seconds lasts forever because they're thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be over. It's going to be over. It's going to be over. Why is this It's going to be me. It's going to be me. And yeah, I don't know the answer. Exactly. I don't know. The, yeah. Because if in, in your head, all you're thinking to yourself is I don't know the answer then that's all that's in your head since your head can only have one thing in its head in your head at a time okay okay so that said do we want to get to the examples yeah okay so we will now try and answer the how many baseballs does it take to fill a jumbo jet question okay and since you're the one who's good at maths (laughs) we'll let you do it oh you're gonna let me do it okay yeah well, I've never thought about that before. I suppose it's a bit more than Barry Bonds' home runs, no steroids included. Um, it's more than Stan Musial's hits, 3,630. I guess in its millions. Let me think that through for a little bit. So, what, what knowns and unknowns do we have here? Well, let's make an assumption about the size of the jumbo jet. Um, a jumbo jet is roughly, I'm going to say, 200 feet long. That's my assumption. And I don't know, it's 20 feet across, maybe? And it's... 60 feet high, and uh, that puts me at a volume, assuming circular, right? About 240,000 square feet is what I'm dealing with, okay? So I'm also then going to say it's half that in terms of space because I'm going to assume you're only going to put baseballs in the top half because baseballs are like important cargo. They shouldn't go down below with everything else. And so half of 280,000 square feet is 120,000 square feet, okay? And I'm, not, I'm going to assume there are no seats or anything up there. If there are seats, then that would change things. We'd have a lesser number. Although I don't think it'd be a lot less. Um, the baseballs would fit around virtually everything. Seats are pretty thin nowadays. I'm going to say, you know, a baseball, I, I should know the, dis, the diameter, but I don't. But I'm going to say my fist is about that size. I know a credit card is about three inches long. And so that's about three inches my size of my fist. So therefore, I'm going to say... Uh, a baseball is a circumference of roughly nine inches because that's pi d. And then I'm going to say, but oh wait, I don't want circumference. I want uh, area, and so or uh, I'm sorry, um, cubic inches. And I'm going to do four thirds pi r cubed. And I'm going to say it's roughly thirty cubic inches. I'm just doing the math real quick here. Um, there are seventeen hundred and twenty-eight cubic inches in a square foot, so. That would technically say there are about, what, 50 or 60 balls in this, in, in, that would fit in a square foot. That seems a little high to me, but that's what my math says right now. I'd have to actually put a cubic foot on the ground and measure it. But even if it's a little high, if I say the number is 50, so, uh, I think 140,000 square feet times 50 balls per each of those square feet, and I end up with 7 million. 
that, you know, um, give or take a little bit. Uh, I, I think I've got some assumptions that may end up canceling each other out, but I'll go with 7 million. Did that make sense to you or do I need to walk through? Is there, is there something that you know that I don't know that would help me tighten up some of that data so I could give you a more exact answer? That's Good probably job. that's probably how it would sound. Yeah, and there's a lot of ums and ers and rufflies yeah. and estimates and 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 kind of oh, I'm just going to guess at that, and that's yeah. absolutely fine because there's no way you can know any of this stuff. Yeah, I would also say that that it's a good idea to think the interview historically is a desk and you on opposite sides of it, you and the interviewer on opposite sides of it. This question really suggests that what you want to do is almost like you're working with the interviewer, collaborating, sitting on the same side of the desk, talking about this problem in front of you, and you're saying, hey, here's the way I'm thinking about it. I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. I could do this and this and this, and that gets me here, and I could be off there, but I suspect my assumptions are cancel each other out, so therefore I'm here. What do you think? That's the mentality to have, and most people aren't comfortable doing that in an interview because they think of themselves as being on the other side of the table. But if you think of yourself as being on the same side of the table, don't get too chummy, too chummy, then that would make it easier for you to be in the right mindset, to feel comfortable sharing your thinking, wrong though it may be, out loud. And it's a stupid question. It doesn't have an answer. Any answer is right as long as you can make the math work. Exactly. Yep. Good. Good. Okay. Shall we do the second one? Absolutely. So if you were a shape, what shape would you be? So again, we'll start with something like, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that before. Let's see shapes. I don't want to be a boring one, like a square or a round or um, rectangle. It'll be usual. Let's see. I think I would be an arrow pointing forwards through time because I'm the type of person who forges ahead Sometimes that needs a pointy edge to get through the new information, new technology, or new territory. I also have a breadth of knowledge, so that's the wide part of the arrow, and I always follow up, so that's the long tail of the arrow. Does that sound like a good example? I like that very much. It's good. It's funny. Yeah. I think if I think if we did a survey, and by the way, folks, we're going to do a survey in 2014 of all of our listeners. We encourage you to respond to help us understand what you guys need and want from us. Um, if we did a survey and we said there are two, Mark and Wendy both answered the question, "What shape would you be?" and the two answers were a point, an arrow pointing forward in time, and a circle. Which who answered which way? 90 plus percent of the people would say you said the circle and I said the arrow pointing forward in time, which just proves you did, they don't know you very well. And when I was asked this question, I said, oh, I'd be a circle. I said, I don't, I don't have any rough edges. It's fairly uniform. The circle exists in virtually all uh, societies as a sign of wholeness and completeness and frankly tends to cause uh, feelings emotional feelings of happiness and so on and even though I may in fact have rough edges at times um, I can envision myself as a circle and lastly if everybody stands in a circle um, we all see one another as clearly as we possibly can uh, you know Aww. I said something like that and I'm sure they thought wow I didn't expect that from him <laughs> Yeah, whereas everybody would, if they knew me a little, would know that I was a pointy edge. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, but again, if you're, if you're driving to work for the next week, try and answer if you were a color, if you were a shape, if you were an animal, if you were a vegetable. None of those questions have any bearing on whether or not you're a good software coder. But if they're going to ask the question and you think, 
I don't know how to answer that question. How did Wendy and Mark come up with those answers? Well, Wendy and Mark have had some practice and what we do is see silly questions and think, what would I answer to that? And literally just make it up in a, in, as yeah. we go along. Because we're not worried about being wrong because we know we're not going to be wrong because there is no wrong answer. And if you've had some practice making these things up, you won't panic when you hear the question. Yeah, even if you don't get the question you practiced, it doesn't matter. You know this type of question is one that doesn't have a right answer and you simply say, oh, I've been practicing that and so I'm going to do what I normally do. I'm going to sound casual, I'm going to sound comfortable, I'm going to walk through my logic and I'm going to come up with an answer. And if they say, well, you're off by a factor of 10, you say, oh, well, help me understand where I went wrong. I'd be happy to, to do it again, you know, give me another chance. Right? Absolutely nothing wrong with that, guys. Nothing. So again, we're, we hopefully we share with you why they, you get asked these questions. You give your work out loud. If it's a question of personal preference, better to give your answer right up front like circle or arrow pointing forward in time. If not, if it's a math question or a deduction question or a problem solving question, you won't. You'll actually give your, your rationale and come up with an answer at the end. And then hopefully the baseballs and the shape question were helpful for you in terms of um, giving you examples. And surely, Wendy, we want to tell them not to panic. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is, like, we've said it 20 times, but we'll say it again. I'll say it again. There is no right answer. So it doesn't matter what you say. If you're completely blank, look around the room and pick something in the room to help you. The interviewer wants to hear your logic and your communication skills. Getting it right is irrelevant. So just start answering and, and try and have some logic to you so that they can follow it through yeah. and you'll be fine. And practice delivering so that when you deliver it, it won't be for the first time in an interview and it won't sound like it's the first time and you will be fine. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this. Those questions scare people. Hopefully, we made you feel a little bit more confident walking into your next interview. Good luck. Thank you.